The world's wind industry is gathering in Melbourne this August. Join them at the APAC Summit to discuss collaboration, market building and solving supply chain challenges in the expanding APAC market. Buy tickets at apacsummit2023.com.au. Hello listeners, my name's Stuart Mullen. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at the Global Wind Energy Council and today we are giving you a sneak preview into the APAC Offshore Wind and Green Hydrogen Summit. And we have a very special guest who will be one of our headline speakers at the conference, the uh, founder and chief technical officer and board member of Steesdale Industries and a great friend and a great uh, ambassador for the industry, Mr. Henrik Steesdale. Welcome, Henrik. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. No worries. so Steesdale Industries, maybe you can give the listeners a bit of a background as to the broad spectrum of activities that Steesdale's involved in. Yes, <clears throat> I have a background in wind power, having been around since the 1970s. And I worked with um, some big companies until I retired at the end of 2014. At that time, I was 58 and not really shall we say, yet into fully retiring. So I looked around for some fields that could uh, maybe uh, benefit from innovation compared to the stage at which the industries were at that time. So ultimately, we ended up building a company that does four different things. It does um, uh, structures for floating offshore wind. It does um, energy storage. It does green hydrogen, and then it does a, an arrangement whereby we buy pyrolysis of agricultural and forestry waste can create green fuels at the same time as we sequester carbon from the atmosphere. Sounds like a very broad footprint. And do you have, uh, you're based in Denmark. What's your global footprint like for the company and how do you see some of the, the uh, emerging regions, for example, like APAC? Yeah, at the moment we are only in in um, in Denmark and have a small, very small presence in the U.S. Um, but it's clear that our main target is to have impact on the fight against climate change, and you cannot have impact by just staying in Denmark. That's obvious. Uh, we are like 0.1 percent of global population. So it's unavoidable that if you want to have impact on this struggle we are all in, you need to be global. Um, We are uh, a much too small company, only a a little over 100 people to serve all the markets globally. So uh, the way we intend to pursue a global presence will be through partnerships and licenses. And uh, in that context, of course, APEC is particularly interesting because the increase in emissions from um, Asia is uh, high and somewhat worrying. And uh, that is where we need to get the green technologies implemented as much as possible, as quickly as possible. That is much, much more important in how we succeed in, for instance, Denmark. Yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of players that are, I guess, particularly in the hydrogen space, I think that in the offshore wind space, we've got a long demonstrated track record of uh, of success 
in building out uh, offshore wind markets. I guess two of your technologies, the floating wind and also the hydrogen, uh, they're particularly interesting to the APAC region. I mean, we've got a lot of countries in APAC that talk about being uh, leaders of the green hydrogen economy and they're the the uh, water depths around a lot of the markets in APAC also are uh, quite challenging for floating uh, wind. And so hopefully we'll start to see some scale pick up in some of those markets. So just out of curiosity, uh, how do you, in terms of like the Steesdale uh, footprint, maybe you can share with the listeners a little bit about the uh, yeah, your um, hydrogen and also floating technologies. Yeah, if we start with the floating offshore wind, <clears throat> the main motivation for that is that you will be able to uh, expand the footprint of offshore wind dramatically compared to using just, just in inverted commas, uh, the bottom fixed technologies that we are used to from northwestern Europe, from China, from, from the east coast of the US. Ordinary <clears throat> offshore wind um, with bottom fixed foundations can go out to 60, maybe on a good day, 70 meters water depth. And that is more than enough for the shallow waters of the North Sea and the Baltic in Northwestern Europe. So we can serve a very large part of European electricity demand with conventional bottom fixed offshore wind. That won't happen in, in the APEC region. Most countries will not have such an abundance of shallow water opportunities for offshore wind. And that's, of course, where floating comes in. <clears throat> because floating is fundamentally unrestricted by the water depths going deep. It is restricted going shallow. So you cannot realistically go more shallow than about 50 meters with floating. But in theory, you can go to any depths. You could go to the Mariana Trench and still have your equipment working. It doesn't care about the depths. Of course, in practice, the costs for your mooring and your cables will increase with depths. And therefore, we normally <coughs> don't see many inquiries about floating wind deeper than 1,000, 1,500 meters. But within that range from 50 to maybe 1,500 meters, floating offshore wind offers the opportunity of green electricity production anywhere in the world. And that's, of course, particularly important where we have countries that have limited space available onshore. It will often be so that, or it will almost always be so that uh, floating offshore wind will be more expensive than uh, land-based wind or solar PV. But if you don't have the space for that, um, floating offshore wind offers the opportunity of green electricity production. And compared with solar, it will typically offer a much more steady output and therefore a, a, a less of an, a challenge to the stability of the electricity production than solar PV. And that's one of the things I would like to discuss in, in at the conference with, with local representatives is to what extent uh, floating wind could impact their electricity supply in, in the different countries around the region. Yep. And so on the hydrogen side, on the hydrogen front, uh, your electrolyzer uh, business, the how do you see that having an impact in markets? If, well, maybe we can take the Australian market, for example, where, where there's a lot of uh, onshore, there's a lot of large scale onshore uh, 
hydrogen projects planned for Western Australia. And I guess the market in general is trying to work out how to uh, get the most amount of hydrogen from wind and solar uh, and what that sort of looks like. Do you have any insight or intel into that area? Oh, yes, we have looked a lot into the, uh, not all obviously, but some of the big projects in Australia. And it's clear that the country is blessed with an abundant resource of renewables and has uh, the benefit of large areas of, of land that um, it can be made available for solar PV and, and wind, particularly in, in the West, where you can say from an ordinary point of view, what would you want to do with electricity production up there? Because you couldn't get rid of it to consumers at the, in the South and East. But when you have a local consumption as for hydrogen production, it seems like an ideal setup given the, the uh, quality of the resource. Um, when you when you go to um, when you go to green hydrogen production, um, you you face a, 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 so we say a challenge in that um, when you are off grid, your hydrogen uh, unit needs to be producing when there's wind and or solar power, and that means that you speak intermittent operation. You may have a capacity factor of 50% if you are in a, in a mix of solar and wind, or you might have a capacity factor of 30% roughly if you're only on solar PV. And that's when you have a, 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 a expensive investment good, you basically want it to run all the time. So here's a, a sort of inborn conflict. Yeah, but. We would like it to run all the time, but we don't have a resource more than 30% of the time or 50% of the time. And here the trick is that to the extent we can make green hydrogen production cheap, this would greatly benefit our ability to produce efficiently, even at those fairly low capacity factors. So what we are putting everything into pursuing is to make cheap electrolyzers, because that will so to speak, you could almost say democratize uh, the availability of green hydrogen production. It can be made available in places where your resource is intermittent and maybe not all that good, because if the hydrogen equipment is cheap enough, it doesn't really matter that your resource is uh, not particularly good, uh, because it doesn't really affect the, the production cost of your hydrogen. That would be driven by the cost of your energy to generation equipment and by the quality of the resource, of course, if you have less solar power, your hydrogen gets more expensive, but it will not to a large extent be driven by the equipment itself. And that's sort of the, the, the concept we are working to, that is to try and make electrolyzers as simple as, and cheap as possible. Fantastic. So thank you very much for giving us a bit of insight into the floating and hydrogen puzzle. I want to pick your brains a bit of I guess you have probably more than anyone in the world seen the changes uh, of or seen the development and uptake of wind power uh, around the globe. I mean, you know, you were recently recognised as uh, one of the pioneers of, uh, of wind at the at the Terawatt party in London. And um, when 
in your early career, everything was about onshore wind and you saw the markets develop. Do you get a sense of deja vu now that in the offshore wind space that it's, you know, like it's the market seems to be following the same patterns of development as what they did in the early days? And, um, you know, governments are now looking to understand that how much benefit or how much resource they have in their waters instead of their land. What's your uh, uptake and perception? And maybe yeah, yeah, it, it is, of course, a, <coughs> excuse me, it's, of course, a good question. Um, and there's a, a significant element of truth in it that you can say it feels maybe as a second wave yeah. in wind power, where onshore wind was, of course, totally dominating in the first 15 years of the industry. We only had uh, the first offshore wind farm installed in 91, and it only really got traction around 2010. That's when you can see the growth curve really accelerating. Um, And now we see, um, but we saw the acceleration coming in onshore wind decades before that. Now we see this acceleration coming um, and and there's uh, spreading across the world that we saw for conventional wind power from nine, about 1990 and onwards. We had the first project in China in 89. We had the first project in India in 86, but it only really took off in the 90s. And um, so there we had the wave coming. And now it is as if we have the wave coming on on offshore wind. It's somewhat different because the um, level of professionalism and the engagement of global players is in a different league than it was at that time. At that time, it was always about local players. It was very often about um, European uh, uh, aid. So it was aid agencies that were involved in the first projects in China and India elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So there was, a, 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 you can say, a professional, non-local element, but that element was besides the turbine supplier, an aid agency. That's completely gone now. The professional outside player now is the developer and the financer. And there we are in a, in a completely different game than we were uh, 30, 40 years ago with onshore wind. And I'm sure that this will help accelerate the what you would call the second wave, because you are speaking with people who know essentially the whole food chain, the whole system from uh, the European and American and Chinese uh, um, offshore uh, wind projects who have been through the learning curves and who have also been through to a significant extent, at least in Europe, the internationalization of it because uh, offshore wind in Europe has become a multinational game, not only in that projects are installed in different countries, but also that projects are very often, almost always composed of equipment from different countries, turbines from here, foundations from there, cables from a third place. Um, So we are speaking a much more professional, um, um, shall we say, um, ensemble of players that are coming in now. And I hope that that can help accelerate things. What is a little more difficult is that um, equipment from for modern offshore wind, whether it be floating or bottom fixed, is essentially very large scale. And that means that the localization of manufacturing 
is a much bigger um, challenge than it was when we had to start making towers in India or China uh, 35, 40 years ago. That is a much more difficult task now than it was at that time. So there are things that will accelerate matters, but there are also things where the local content challenges are not so easily overcome as they were at the time. I think uh, this is something that the conference, the APAC conference is going to have to deal with. One of the things that we can see is that there will be significant challenges, particularly in these emerging markets or these emerging emerging regions uh, where you've got a lot of competition for projects in the same years. And and relatively speaking, you know, I, I guess when when you started off, you know, like having a one gigawatt project would have been unheard of, but now a one gigawatt fact, uh, project doesn't even keep a factory alive for, for one cycle. I mean, you know, we're talking under 100 units now for for a one gigawatt project. So having multiple gigawatt, uh, you know, get, making sure that regions and markets provide these uh runways or pathways or visibility around volume to make sure that there's no boom and bust cycles in the market. I think this is going to be the real key and uh, for getting countries and markets to understand what their role is in a global supply chain. This is one of the focus areas of the conference that we would hope to be able to discuss during the APAC summit because I think that that we have to we have to solve these challenges somehow, and I'm not sure whether I mean you know in your experience you must have seen this in the onshore world, and I'm not sure if there's any experiences that you can relate to that maybe we can have a look at uh, or any solutions that might help here. Yeah, yeah. When when we started the early when we started the early projects in Denmark, that was back in the 1970s these considerations did not exist at all. It was local, it happened locally, there was not a problem. When we went to the US for the big California boom in the first part of the 80s, it was still no issue. There was a a softly voiced, and it didn't really matter, desire for local content. It was only discussed if it could make things cheaper. When we started going more global in the late 80s uh, and in the 90s, the local content came up and it was actually fairly easily met by localizing the tower. Okay. But later on, it became clear that when countries wanted to localize a bigger part of the supply chain, that came with an obligation. And that obligation was that there would have to be a, 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 a supply volume that was if not formally guaranteed, then at least expected over the next five to 10 years that could keep a factory alive because otherwise it simply wouldn't happen. And that learning that you need to realize that if you want local content beyond a certain level, which that certain level can be quite high, you can still have quite a lot of local labor involved if none of the equipment comes from your local country because there's still a lot of work to be done uh, around uh, assembling, installing, and so on, and servicing, and so on. But if you want more than that, the thing you need to give in return is assurance of a decent filling of the factory for quite a, 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 a high number of years. And that challenge is often not fully realized. It's so easy for countries to say, we want it done locally, yes, but nobody will want to establish here if there's not a perspective. And that um, 
experience from the onshore business when we localized factories around the world was that it took some time for governments to realize that this was how it was. But ultimately, the successful localizations did rely on agreements at various levels that there would be a market for the foreseeable future. And that is what will be needed also in the APEC region for offshore wind, for it to get fully uh, rolled out if countries exist, insist on local manufacturing. Yeah, I hope that these trade partnerships that around the globe, you know, if, if you're going to have, I don't know, for example, a trade partnership between Australia and Japan, that maybe that in some of those trade partnerships that the local content or the supply chain uh, demands can be balanced across maybe a couple of markets rather than each individual market, you know, where, where you can play into the strength the strengths of individual countries as, you know, what their role in the supply chain is going to be. We have, sorry. From, from, from a logical point of view, nothing would be more straightforward than getting some countries together and say, do we want this to happen? If we want it to happen, we need to uh, make certain commitments. Can we share the commitments in order for all of us to benefit? But it takes more than the logic of my statement here to make it happen. <laughs> That's how it is. Exactly. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Henrik. Um, we look forward to very much welcoming you to Melbourne on the 28th, uh, starting on the 28th, and the uh, conference starting on the 29th of August 2023, and it will run through to the 31st of August 2023. Have you ever been to uh, Melbourne before? No, I've never had the luck to be in, in Melbourne. I've been one day in Sydney, in Australia, that's all. So I'm really looking forward to it. Great. Thanks very much for joining us, Henrik. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. 